Hi, I'm Peter Drobak, and this is Reimagine, a new podcast from the Skoll Center for Social Entrepreneurship at Oxford University's Said Business School. In this series, we'll be meeting the visionaries, the disruptors, the world's problem solvers, who are taking up the challenge of fixing the bits of our worlds that are broken, the people who see things differently. And we need them now more than ever. This podcast has been months in the making. When we started out, most people had never heard of a coronavirus or COVID-19. We were excited to bring you stories of people who are inventing the future and finding solutions to big problems like the climate crisis, global health, and education. And we still are. Over the next six episodes, we've got a spectacular lineup of guests. Provocative thinkers, path-breaking social entrepreneurs, iconoclastic parliamentarians, and someone who's trying to save the world one donut at a time. They'll give you faith there's no hole humanity can't dig ourselves out of. But in a handful of weeks, the world has changed. For years, many of us in global health have been saying that the big one, a pandemic disease, was a matter of when, not if. And this is the big one. As we record this, COVID-19 cases are numbering in the millions, over half the world's population is in some form of lockdown, and we're on the precipice of a global recession. And meanwhile, all our other problems aren't going to magically disappear. We know that things will never be the same after COVID-19, but how do we make sure that the future is better than what we're leaving behind? Well, Reimagine is a podcast about reframing problems, so we've done a little reframing of our own. We've ripped up our schedule to start this new series with an emergency podcast on the coronavirus pandemic with one of the world's foremost public health heroes, Dr. Paul Farmer. But before we begin, a quick note. The pandemic has affected how we're able to put this podcast together. Usually, we'd all be in a studio and use reporters around the world to record our international guests. But with ever-tightening travel restrictions and speakers in quarantine, all that has changed. I'm recording this under an enormous blanket to block out the sounds of a family sheltering in place. It's a bedroom tent that would make my kids proud. Meanwhile, some of our guests will be recording their interviews at home on their smartphones. As a consequence, the audio quality may not always be up to scratch. We hope you'll bear with us. This is like a flu, but it's not the flu. It's vicious. Öffentliches Leben und die sozialen Kontakte. In France, the number of dead from coronavirus continues to rise. If not contained in a country the size of India, that number could multiply. Back to the coronavirus pandemic. So much of what's happening right now feels new. Not just the virus itself, but the speed and breadth with which it seems to be enveloping our world and every aspect of our lives. And yet, epidemic disease is a tale as old as time. And that's why I wanted to step back and try to take the long view. A look back to explore what past epidemics can teach us, but also a look ahead to how this pandemic might define us. You're about to meet someone I've worked alongside as a doctor and troublemaker for a long time and through several epidemics. Someone who knew early on that this was not a drill. 
someone who can help us put this uncertain, frightening moment into perspective. He's been called the man who would cure the world, Dr. Paul Farmer. Paul is an infectious disease doctor and anthropologist who co-founded Partners in Health, a global health and social justice organization that works with governments and communities around the world to make high-quality health care accessible to everyone, especially the poorest. He's a university professor at Harvard and runs a department of global health and social medicine there. He's written numerous important books and been the subject of another. And Paul is a bona fide public health rock star, if ever there was one, as evidenced by the fact that actual rock stars love him. Paul has also been a teacher, colleague, and friend of mine for almost 20 years. Partners in Health is a funny organization. There's no work-life balance. It's more like work-life integration. So we've been through a lot together over the years. And when this new coronavirus emerged, he was the first person I wanted to talk to about it. Paul spoke with me from a rectory in Boston, as one does in a pandemic. I began by asking him how the situation differs from past epidemics. Well, you know, having just spent some years, often in your presence, in West Africa, fighting Ebola and taking care of Ebola patients and thinking about health systems, it's hard not to be struck by the resonances, the historical resonances. So even though the virus is a newly described one, the social responses that we're seeing are old friends or enemies sometimes, you know, anxiety, fear, but also this wonderful rise of solidarity and fellow feeling that you often see in the middle of catastrophes, whether national or global. So it's how do we keep moving towards those positive and effective responses and away from the fear-based ones? We want some fear, obviously, we want people to be sobered by the power of an invisible agent like this to alter our lives in the most dramatic way. I mean, some fear, just as with Ebola, it would be crazy to not have been afraid of Ebola, right? That said, everybody's talking about the big one in 1918. And I think that's been a very useful exercise because it really was such a big one. Um, There are lots of similarities that have been noted and lots of differences. But in terms of the burden of disease, we have learned a lot. I mean, just being here in Boston uh, at Harvard Medical School, uh, just hearing the folks just around one medical center talk about the basic science promise you know, for a new vaccine, new diagnostics, better diagnostics, new therapeutics. If we are heading towards another big one, we have a lot of tools that we did not have in 1918. But it's hard to know. I mean, that's the other thing, Peter. I'm sure you're seeing this from your vantage point is people are coming to us and others with questions like, what should we do now? And, you know, it's not entirely straightforward to know, is this massive social and economic response in keeping with the nature of the challenge? I mean, I think it is, but, you know, we may look back and say, well, you know, maybe that was too much um, because it certainly is going to have an enormous effect on the poor and the vulnerable to, you know, to see this massive rise in unemployment with a weak safety net, et cetera. But right now, I, I think we're, we're seeing a, an increasingly aggressive response and whether or not it's been fast enough is, you know, is something we're going to know about very shortly. 
you have such an interesting perspective, I think, because even just amongst your colleagues and trainees, you know, uh, comprise some of those scientists that are working on the new vaccines and treatments, as well as some of the frontline health workers and, and even community health workers in rural Haiti and Rwanda and other places that are just sort of preparing to confront this this pandemic. Do you think that the truly global nature of the current outbreak sets it apart in some ways in, in terms of how we think about it from previous epidemics that might have been more concentrated in poor or emerging countries? Yeah, I mean, I think, again, going back to Ebola, you know, the problem was always in West Africa. But things have changed a lot as coronavirus has swept into Europe and North America. I mean, I've heard colleagues in Italy say, we watched what was happening in China as if we were watching some bizarre science fiction movie. And now people in the United States are watching what's happening in Italy as if they were watching a bizarre science fiction movie, right? The big difference with a global pandemic is this problem is everywhere. So now comes a different challenge, I think, which is how do we cultivate that sense of solidarity and fellow feeling for the distant suffering, people we cannot see, people who might not look like us either, but the point is they're not here with us. It's not immediate. Maybe I'm just pathologically optimistic or need to be, but I think that we're going to see people say, well, we've got to think about the most vulnerable across the world. The question is, do we really want national boundaries to divine our response? Because the virus itself clearly is not that interested by national boundaries. This is an, a human obsession, right? With you know, where's Northern Italy versus Southern Italy? On and on it goes. We have national responses to a global pandemic. And there's sure to be some problems with that, right? Because the global response has to be nothing short of robust and needs to be increasingly coordinated. And, uh, you know, I think that the nation state versus global part has always been the Achilles heel of public health, right? Because, you know, the first institutions, even before the UN was founded, like the Pan American Health Organization, they were always about protecting trade predominantly. Mm -hmm. And so these sanitary conferences and the creation of the, the global ar architecture of public health and global health, their roots are in trade agreements and in fear of communicable pathogens. Indeed, much like the foreign aid complex was largely built on the political and economic interests of the, the donor countries as opposed to the needs of the poor. Let's go back to the beginning of this current outbreak. A lot has been made about the sort of flat-footed response in the U.S., in the U.K., and some other places who really seem to be caught a bit complacent. And I've been thinking a lot about something you taught me, which is to beware of the so-called delay phase. And I want to play a clip from Bending the Arc, which is a beautiful documentary film about partners in health and the global health equity movement, of which you're one of the more prominent voices, and just reflect on something that you said. Even though sometimes we like to say we're quick out of the box, we're still way too slow. Because there's always this period where you, you say, please tell me this is not my responsibility. And that delay is lethal. You know, were we slow out of the box here? And, and why can't we seem to get this right? Well, I mean, yeah, those are a lot of difficult memories, you know. But they are memories, you know. The, it's not like the terrible 80s and AIDS. They're rooted in time. But there was just so many lives lost in these delays. And I would just say, again, I don't know how historians will, medical historians and social historians will look back on this. Did the Chinese 
delay? You know, I don't know about that, Pete, because, you know, to have a new pathogen first identified as a new pathogen, first of all, that usually is a process that takes a long time. And on a certain day in January, if I'm not mistaken, its genome was published by the Chinese. It was shared, and I can tell you that it, at Harvard, in any case, within days, people were using that information to plan out the development of vaccine and animal testing, which has already begun. And so that's got to be some sort of record. You know, if you go from the identification of the new syndrome called AIDS to go from there to identifying the pathogen to developing cheap tests to developing new therapies to developing deep understandings of how it could be prevented and how it could not that took a decade and we thought it was pretty damn fast so here looking from december to now of course there have been big errors i, I mean the testing situation in the united states is hard to read in any other way. We needed to avoid those centralizing nodes of control that we've seen many times in our work, right? Where an institution or an institute of some sort says, no, only I can do this test or only I can validate this. I get why people do that. We want quality control, et cetera, et cetera. But come what may, we did not move as quickly as, let's say, South Korea. And the good thing is we can study what was done in South Korea, not just to mimic it, but to say, hey, what did they get right that we didn't get right? So I know a minute ago we were trashing nationalism and talking about the importance of a global response, but can we just reflect for a minute on how different countries or different parts of the world have responded so far and, and, and what kinds of lessons we can take from that? Maybe not just South Korea and the U.S., but uh, even in the global South. Well, a lot of us are watching Rwanda, right? I mean, I know you are. Um, I was there last month at the height of, or what felt like the height of a, a last-ditch effort to get ready. This is before there were any cases, well before any identified cases. And, um, you know, it's, it's an impressive thing to see an entire branch of government, more than one, uh, mobilized to get ready. I mean, it's a very in inspiring thing to see. Will this commitment to containment, mitigation, and better care Will this uh, get Rwanda through the most difficult kind of challenges? I think it will. You know, I keep going back to case fatality ratio or mortality rates. If you look at Korea, they had a lot of cases, but very low fatality rates, right? But I'm, I'm looking at Italy's, and yes, I know the population most effective is elderly, but China's elderly too, and becoming increasingly elderly. And so is North Korea. And we've seen very, very high case fatality ratios in Italy. And we want to know why. Is it just the straightforward uh, answer that the healthcare system was overwhelmed? It's a reliable thing to look at, I think, to get a report card. If we keep looking only at new cases in the middle of this testing debacle, we're not going to know really what that means, right? What we're seeing in parts of the United States, including the Northeast, is that a lot of people coming into the emergency rooms and testing centers who are positive, they've only been sick for a couple of days. They're, they're new diagnoses. So we know that, or we can guess that there's on, ongoing community transmission, of course, right? But I don't think we can back up on looking at the quality of care as one of our major report cards 
you know, we shouldn't wait and say, well, now that we've got it under control, now we can focus on the quality of care. That's what we did with Ebola. And I would say that that was, although I, I'm reading with some interest, many who feel that that was a successful response, I'm not feeling it. I mean, case fatality ratios were as high at the end of that epidemic in, let's say, 2016, 20, late 2015. It was as high then as at the height of the surge. So now everybody's talking about the surge and flattening the curve, which I think is a great thing for the general public to know about. But how are we going to get people to come in for testing and isolation and care if there's not high quality care on offer? So it's a very difficult line, and it's right where we are now in the United States and much of Europe, it would seem to me. If people are afraid to seek care, you know, which they're not at this point, um, if they're afraid to seek care, then it's going to be very difficult for the machinery of isolation, contact tracing. If we don't know where they are, we're not going to be able to, to act speedily. So giving up on containment is a mistake. Giving up on mitigation is a mistake. And above all, we've got to keep focus on what most humans are looking for, which is expert mercy. It's being cared for and seeing that their loved ones are cared for. That's what humans are looking for. Absolutely. I was chatting uh, yesterday with a journalist from Italy in, in Lombardy, and um, she, she was asked by the presenter for this panel discussion we were doing whether people were tiring of the lockdown um, and starting to get grumpy about it and resisting it. And she said, no, you know, the real problem is for most of us is that we're watching our loved ones die in front of us and we can't even reach out and touch them. You know, that, that just says it so well. Yes, we can hear, if we turn on the television, we're going to hear about, you know, kids going to spring break in Fort Lauderdale or whatever, or people congregating when they shouldn't. And, and you know, that's a very, that's very real here in the United States, and I'm sure it's real in Europe as well. But that's not the dominant sense you get right. of people saying, I refuse. And, you know, remember... When we talked about this, when we talked about it in the past, we've said to each other anyway, you think Americans would put up with this? I think now we know is there's more of an appetite for it if they believe it's going to work. And our real assurance to them is that we got you. We will take care of you when you're sick. We need you to comply with these new rules. We're taking a big risk here of sabotaging the economy to protect the the people who make an economy. And I think it's a, I think it's been a very decent bet. You know, I think the authorities have impressed me by at least not fetishizing profit above all Mm -hmm. and thinking about caregiving that heartens me. Paul, reflecting on your experience with Ebola and other epidemics, what are the critical tools and interventions that we need to be doing right now to curb the spread of coronavirus? Well, I, I would go with three key messages that are desperately important now, and they were then. And the first is we always need to avoid a containment over care approach. Containment and care are two sides of the same coin. People need to be promised they'll be cared for, and they need to be promised they'll be protected. You know, a second point is we got to protect the healthcare workers and caregivers. And when we don't, not only do we lose them, as was the case for close to a thousand healthcare professionals of one sort or another in West Africa with Ebola, 
We also expose mom and grandma and dad and everybody else because when there are no professional caregivers, this I guarantee you about human nature, their families will take care of them. And the families are nowhere near as well protected as even underprotected healthcare workers. And then finally, and this is the most boring part, we shouldn't have such a hard time explaining why health systems are important and why they need to be strengthened. Now, shame on us if we cannot seize this moment to make some desperately needed changes in our human social architecture. The leading cause of people being tipped from poverty into destitution across the world, the leading cause is catastrophic illness or injury. Still, so that means we don't have strong insurance systems and strong safety nets. And this is country after country. So I, I, I'm just praying that we seize the moment to make some much needed improvements in our systems. Here's what's important about Paul Farmer's perspective. When the dominant discourse now is very much about case fatality rates and epidemic curves, Paul talks about this notion of expert mercy, that what we need is medical treatment, but also the comfort in knowing that someone has got our back. There's another side to this that also takes us back to the Ebola epidemic. When a health system is consumed responding to a crisis, what happens to medical care for everything and everyone else? In the West Africa Ebola outbreak, about 11,000 people lost their lives to that terrible disease. But compounding that tragedy, nearly as many people died of other avertible diseases like malaria, tuberculosis, or complications in childbirth, simply because the health system wasn't able to cope. And we're seeing that now even in wealthy countries like Italy. And so, as we think about trying to reinforce health systems to prepare for the surge of COVID-19 cases, we also need to think about long-term systemic change. How do we build systems that are resilient and equitable, that'll do a better job of protecting people in the future? I asked Paul Farmer about this. Well, I mean, I can say what we did during the Ebola outbreak, but I know you know this, but it's just worth summarizing. When we did go there, we went with a proposed plan, and it was proposed, of course, to the national health authorities of Sierra Leone and Liberia. They also proposed to us, we want you to take care of Ebola patients, but we also want you to help us open up our healthcare system because both really leveled by war only a decade previously, they had very, very weak health systems before Ebola came along and they were shuttered completely. So the surge that we're talking about of 2014 to go in in the middle of that surge and say, we are going to open up maternity care. We are going to open up primary care. It was a very difficult thing to do, but that was always, you know, the idea. And, and where did we get that from? Well, we'd lived through the earthquake in Haiti. We'd lived through other epidemics where, you know, something catastrophic happens, including violence. Uh, and then primary health care and emergency health care, too, and maternal care all go to shit. So how do you open up a nursing school in rural Liberia, for example? How do you open up a district hospital in rural Sierra Leone? I mean, we knew how to do that. We've got to be able to walk and chew gum at the same time here, right? Because 
there's going to be car accidents and obstructed labor and minor injuries that take lives because there's not someone around to provide that care. And at this time, you know, we're thinking about elderly patients, shut-ins, people don't have great housing situations, who don't have reliable safety nets, have poor quality insurance, et cetera, et cetera. Um, we've got to be thinking how to take care of those people too. Absolutely. So let's talk about that. I was reflecting on Rwanda and a few moments ago, you said Rwanda is one of those places where you're hopeful that they are ready for, for what's to come and, and, and might be able to, to, to hold this off. And that's really because of 15 years of investment in the country's healthcare system. And I think having had to be vigilant for past epidemics, right? That uh, the country's always been on a bit of a war footing and, uh, and and been prepared. And this is in contrast to we've seen so many places where every time there's an epidemic, it feels like Groundhog Day, that we're caught off guard and we're caught flat-footed and we're being reactive, reactive, reactive. And at the end of it, we say, gosh, we got to be more prepared next time. And everyone just goes back to normal business, right? After Ebola... 99% of the aid and aid organizations all sort of took off and very few stayed behind and actually started building for, for the future. And I hope that's a cautionary lesson for us um, this time as we emerge from, from this crisis. I'm just going to say, it took me a decade to say this publicly in Rwanda, but in 1994, I thought they will never recover from the genocide. Hmm. I mean, I didn't say that out loud. And fortunately, there was no such thing as tweeting back then. Uh, but I was ashamed that I said that because every time I bet against the Rwandans, I've been wrong. They put 15 to 20 years in building that system so that it's a system and that the, you know, that things like epidemics and stockouts don't just take them by surprise, as seems to have happened in a number of much more affluent uh, countries with, you know, big and robust healthcare systems. They've got this resolve to apply a systems approach to whatever comes along. I mean, you've not only seen it many times, but helped to develop that. So they've got this sense that, you know, we got you. And the we here is a serious-minded central government that has spent 15 years working with provincial governments and women's groups and community groups of all sorts to try and build something that will allow them to pull together Back to the groundhog dig thing. If there's one thing that could come out of this that did not come out of Ebola, like when you know, in 2015, only months after the peak of that surge, which did exactly what we fear here, it wiped out what was left of the healthcare systems of three countries, not two, because Guinea really got walloped too. But Liberia and Sierra Leone, they were clinical deserts before and they were entirely desiccated. And then while there's still dead bodies around, people in the humanitarian response sector, some of them said, well, this is over. We're moving on. Out of here. And you're like, wait, almost a thousand healthcare professionals from West Africa have died. You've just had a thousand people die and now everyone's going to leave, leave the health system undone and unrebuilt. So if there's one thing that we can pray please, please remember that we have to build health systems that are a safety net and they have to be for everybody, particularly the most vulnerable, and that the nation state cannot be the only thing that defines how well we do. You know, this is after praising Rwanda to the heavens. I sure as hell hope and expect 
that Rwanda will do its bit to help Burundi and Tanzania and the United States and Haiti. And indeed, as you'll recall, after the earthquake in Haiti, that's exactly what the Rwandans did. And they sent people to West Africa, at least to Sierra Leone and Liberia, and I think to Guinea as well, you know, to pitch in. So we need that spirit of fellow feeling and to avoid the the braggart type of nationalism that we sometimes are seeing even this early in the epidemic. And this is a lesson not just for poor countries, but for for the world, right? In Italy, we know that about 8% of those infected thus far with the new coronavirus are healthcare workers. Uh, We know that our healthcare system in the U.S. is tremendously unequal and uh, 28 or so million people don't have access to healthcare and worry about them having access to testing and services. Uh, And and, and the list goes on. And this really gets to the animating idea of, of partners in health and really of your career's work, which is about global health equity. Can you just talk about that concept a little bit so that our listeners can really understand the heart of this? There is not a lot to be proud about in global public health in the late 19th and 20th centuries. I mean, that that sounds so sweeping, but if we say global health without the equity, then we often get back into a colonial health model, right? And we've seen this many times, I think, where our aspirations are just a lot lower than what we have for our own families, our own nations. So the global health equity The E word adds that historical acknowledgement of health disparities and of a failure to push forward equity during all those long years of colonial rule, and especially in the 20th century, right? Because that's when colonial rule was at its height in Africa and place where you and I have worked a lot. The primary stigma of global health is colonial rule. And there, of course, there were lots of great public health initiatives in the 20th century, some of them the most famous ones, like the eradication of smallpox. Of course, there were great colonial health officers who really cared and were embarrassed, for example, that in Sierra Leone in the 20th century, they not only banned black doctors from the colonial medical service, but also failed in 200 years of being there to establish a single medical school or a single nursing school. So that heritage is recent. So, so Paul, let's come back to the, the current crisis with COVID-19. What would you say are the worst and best case scenarios here? And I, I'm not thinking what I'm hearing now is alarmist. I'm thinking, well, that's not going to happen unless we don't do anything. In other words, these, these uh, projections of over 2 million deaths in the United States, right? So I'm following the same exercise as you are. I think, as with Ebola, it's best to assume that things could go really wrong if there's not more aggressive interventions. But the worst case scenarios, we should just assume we're not going to see them because we are going to act forcefully. But, you know, we're not going to do that unless we are impelled by a healthy respect or the ability of this pandemic to cause really significant damage. The reason we started this podcast is because I want to challenge and embolden people to you know, make a positive difference in the world, but to be humble enough to actually have a chance at being successful at it. You've probably inspired more young people into lives of service than certainly anyone I know, maybe anyone on the planet. 
And, you know, for a lot of young people, you know, I've got, well, no longer classrooms, but hundreds of students here who are about to go out into the world looking for jobs who have no idea what the future is going to look like. What advice would you have for some of those young people at this moment? I would say we got you, we believe in you, and we want to make sure that this next iteration of human reality is not so truncated or damaged by coronavirus that you're not able to live out your dreams. And again, we've got a long way to do before that's true in the UK or the United States, to say nothing of Rwanda, Malawi, Lesotho, Haiti, and some of the other places we work. And I mean universities. I'm not sure what the it looked like. I mean, the degree to which some kinds of learning do not require physical proximity, whereas other kinds do, we're going to find out a lot, but we still have to show our belief in the promise of the next generation by allowing them to learn the kind of things they'd like to learn and pursue the kind of careers that they want to. I mean, when I, when I first went to Haiti, when I was myself just graduated from university and before, as I say, in England, I was qualified as a physician, I heard people telling me, and they were my age mates, hey, how come you get to go to medical school and I don't even get to go to high school? I learned to stop ignoring that. People would talk to me about their dreams, and they always included universities and training and all kinds of things that sounded an awful lot in retrospect, like the kind of things I was dreaming about. But really, I'm just saying anybody interested in health and social justice and in a more just world still has to be thinking about what these next generations are going to do so that they can have the opportunities to help other people, certainly, that we were lucky enough to have and should be fighting for to this day. As Paul says, it's too early to know where this thing is headed. What we do know is that our actions in the days and weeks to come matter a lot. In an exponential growth scenario, everything is amplified. So let's remember Paul's call for expert mercy. Sure, we need to make smart decisions, but we also need to act with compassion and with a spirit of community and justice. One thing that's concerned me during this pandemic has been watching countries turn inward as they respond to the crisis, fighting one another to cast blame, competing to grab scarce resources. What we really need right now is a massive dose of global solidarity and cooperation. None of us will be safe from the effects of this virus until all of us are. And if we get this right, we'll be better prepared not just for the next pandemic, but for the climate crisis and for every other wicked problem we face. It's a dress rehearsal for 21st century challenges. We'll pick up on this idea in the next episode when we explore new economic thinking. And later in the series, we'll turn to something that Paul mentioned, making the dream of a university education available to anyone who wants it. These have been such cool conversations, I can't wait to share them all with you. My thanks to Dr. Paul Farmer. My name is Peter Drobak, and you've been listening to the emergency launch of Reimagine, a podcast series from the Skoll Center for Social Entrepreneurship at Oxford University's Said Business School. Do you want to see things differently? Subscribe to Reimagine wherever you get your podcasts, 
And if you can, help us get the word out a bit. Tell a few friends about Reimagine and leave us a review. For more information, head to reimaginepodcast.com. And thanks. Thanks.